Hey everybody, I'm Ashton Demery. And I'm Nicole Demery. And welcome to our Atheist Bible Study. Where Joshua should have been one episode because we looked at it and there's not that much left of Joshua to really talk about. So we're going to kind of speed through it and then we're going to cover a little bit of Judges. Yeah, the rest of Joshua was so uneventful. Lame, yeah. Nicole didn't even bother to finish. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to quickly kind of summarize the rest of that uh, as best as we can. Uh, There just really isn't much worth talking about in there. And then we'll get started on Judges and finish that up in the next episode. So when we left off in Joshua, Joshua was bragging about his conquest and how much better it was than Moses's. Mm -hmm. He briefed us on all the kings that he conquered, and his list was much longer than Moses's. Mm -hmm. So that's fun. And then we start this next section talking about the parts that are still left unconquered. So they describe that the Philistines is still unconquered, the Geshurites, land of the Canaanites in the south, the Sidonians, the land of the Gebelites, the Lebanon, and several other parts that have not been, they haven't fought any battles in and haven't conquered yet. And they're instructed to divide all of that land that they still haven't conquered in preparation to take that land. So we start on the east side of the Jordan with the tribes that had chosen not to take their portion of the promised land. We're reminded that the half-tribe of Manasseh, Reuben, and Gad all received their land east of the Jordan. And we're reminded again that Levi gets no inheritance. Mm-hmm. And then we are given a description of the land of Reuben and Gad and half-tribe of Manasseh. So Reuben has the southernmost territory along the Dead Sea and the Jordan as far north as Heshbon. Gad has territory that's in between. It's from Heshbon north to Ramath Mitzpeh, the lower end of the Sea of Chinnereth, which is equivalent to the modern-day Sea of Galilee. And then the half-tribe of Manasseh has the northernmost territory, along, again, along the Jordan. Then we jump back over to the west side of the Jordan, and we talk about all the other tribes. Caleb gets a special inheritance uh, because when they had the spy story, Caleb like Joshua, gave a good report and was honest and didn't try to convince them not to conquer Canaan. So Caleb inherits Hebron, uh, and then they have this like aside about Arba, who is the greatest of the Anakim. Then we get a description of Judah's land, and we go back to Caleb. Caleb fights against the sons of Anak, and Anak is the son of Arba, and he defeats them. Then we have a short story about Caleb trying to take Debir. So basically offers up his daughter as a prize to anyone who can take Debir. And it ends up being Othniel, who is Caleb's nephew, that takes Debir and then ultimately ends up marrying Caleb's daughter. Yes, and they're cousins, which isn't explicitly forbidden in the Bible. Yeah, technically not. But I don't know. When you start saying things like, you know, your sister, your mom, your mother-in-law, your aunt, like all of those things are forbidden. Like it almost feels like it's implied that anybody in that pretty, you know, in that ballpark of relatedness. So then he also like gets some land and then she insists that Caleb give them like a field and also some land with water on it. So he gives it to them. 
Right, the springs, right? Mm-hmm. Upper and lower springs. Uh, next, we get a description of all the towns of Judah, and it tells us which families in the tribe of Judah get each of these towns, which I think so it's the only tribe that they actually do this for. To me, this is kind of, it's a little bit of a tell at what the favorite tribe of the Deuteronomist kind of is, and that the Deuteronomist is centered in the southern part of Israel, and so Judah is really central to that because it is the kingdom of Judah. Uh, and then we get a bunch more descriptions of land. So we get a description of Ephraim's land, of Manasseh's land. And then we hear a story about how the tribe of, Bro- the tribe of Joseph is protesting. Uh, and the tribe of Joseph is essentially the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, uh, because those were the sons of Joseph that were promoted to full tribes. And they end up getting some land since they were complaining about it. And then there are seven tribes remaining, and they sort of get like admonished a little bit for just kind of sitting around and not doing anything. And we get a description of all of their lands too, that they are given by lots. So we have Benjamin's land, Simeon's land, uh, and Benjamin's land is inside of Judah's portion because apparently Judah's portion is too big. Uh, Zebulun's land, Issachar's land, Asher's land, Naphtali's land, Dan's, and then we find out that Joshua himself gets his own city, uh, Timnath Sarah, in the hill country of Ephraim. We talk again about the cities of refuge that we've talked about a few times. And in this case, it's kind of unclear about it. it says that they stay in the city until a trial slash until the death of the high priest. And isn't clear about which one. We get a description of all the cities that the Levites get since they don't get their own land. And then the eastern tribes... Uh, head back over the Jordan to their home. Then we get the first story we've had in a while, which is a story about the Eastern tribes building a memorial altar, which really ticks off the Israelites. Like they kind of flip out and then they are basically threatening to go to war with the Eastern tribes over it. And it seems kind of weird at first that they're freaking out about it. Basically what had happened is they just built an altar to Yahweh in the Eastern tribes land. So on the Eastern side of the Jordan, Well, the reason this is a problem, right, it's not idolatry or anything of that nature, but you understand that the Deuteronomist is very concerned with maintaining a centralized cult and maintaining it centered at the temple in Jerusalem. That's the only place you can do sacrifices. Uh, So basically, they are on their doorsteps ready for war, and the Eastern tribes say, no, we weren't going to sacrifice anything here, we weren't going to do any offerings, this is just as a reminder that we are still people of Yahweh, even though we aren't in the land of Israel. Uh, And then we basically get kind of like a closeout summary where Joshua is telling the people that he's going to die, gives them another reminder to not turn away from Yahweh. They renew the covenant, and there's this line that says, Long ago your ancestors Terah and his sons Abraham and Nahor lived beyond the Euphrates and served other gods. And we talked about it before, but this has not always been, and even in parts up to the time that this is all being written, it was not a, not a monotheistic religion. There even is acknowledgement, you know, throughout these books that the other gods may exist, even if there is one primary god that they worship, and there's an acknowledgement that they didn't always worship that god either. Yeah, well, and it even goes as far to say that Abraham wasn't just worshiping. Right, Abraham, the founder, more or less, of this religion, was not always... Yahweh only. Yeah. Uh, And then Joshua does a summary of their history, and he tells them, you know, for me and my house, uh, we will serve Yahweh. Oh, 
I forgot that that was in this one. My uh, family has a family portrait with that quote underneath it. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Yeah, we have a family portrait of that, and it's never been hung up because everybody looks... Well, I look good, but <laughs> my brother's making like a weird face. Yeah. I mean, they can't hang it up now because it's pretty ironic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> doesn't really apply anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, it would. it's also ironic that that's a line, too, because like, I don't know, he, he says it like in such an uppity way, too, mm-hmm. because then the Israelites turn around and they tell him, yeah, we like that, Joshua. We'll serve Yahweh, too. And he's like, I don't think you should do that. <laughs> he's like, I don't think so, guys. You see, you suck. And this is a full-time job. Yeah. And I know I make it look really easy. Yeah, he basically tells them, like, you shouldn't really risk it because, like, the consequences for being bad at serving Yahweh are really, really bad. And then they, you know, they double down. They say, nope, we're going to serve Yahweh. And then uh, he gives them another reminder of the consequences, writes some stuff down, and then sets up a stone. And then him and uh, Eliezer die. And that's the end of Joshua. Hopefully that summary wasn't too tedious, but that gets us through Joshua. And then we can now move on to Judges, where we start to get back into the flow of what we were doing before. A little more stories. Yes. I'll give a quick background on Judges. It's a little bit of the same we've been seeing throughout the Deuteronomistic history. Likely was written around the same time as a lot of these other ones. It does, in terms of like addressing the monarchy, it seems to take a conflicting stance, which may indicate the work of a redactor with a different stance on the monarchy. But most, the most notable thing about Judges is there are a lot of female characters, which we have not seen a lot of, and I think Nicole is excited for. Yeah. 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 I'm not not excited. Yeah. Okay. And then it follows a really simple pattern. Like It's going to get really repetitive really quick because it's basically <laughs> the Israelites are unfaithful, which is similar to the pattern we saw in like Exodus. Israelites are unfaithful. Bad things happen to them, usually in the form of the Canaanites or another group of people kicking their ass. And they life sucks for like somewhere between four and a hundred years, depending. And then they ask for forgiveness and they complain. And then finally, God sends a judge or a hero who comes to their rescue and saves them. And then that hero dies and they, the cycle starts again. Mm-hmm. So based on my reading of these stories too, it seems to me that these were likely kind of like local legends that already existed. Like uh, that, that's the vibe I get is that like, you know, if you think about, you know, poems and stuff like that, that are written about, you know, the Greek gods and about Greek heroes and stuff like that, there are a lot of variations of them and they, you know, they, there's clearly like an oral, tradition around them and i think that is the case here where you had these were probably already known characters at the time that this was written in my opinion and i am inclined to agree with that because some of the stories are just very different than things that we've seen before and yeah i mean we'll get there when we get there yeah well let's get there now okay (laughs) well first you gotta cover so the start of judges is basically a little repeat of some stuff that happened to Joshua. So Ashton is again going to cover that and then talk about some of the things that are different. Okay. Well, the first thing I want to draw attention to is the first line after the death of Joshua, Uh, because that gets important for understanding the rest of this passage, which an apologist might be inclined to say is merely a summary or a repetition to emphasize the events of Joshua. 
But in fact, the timeline is different, right? It This is after those events. Uh, so basically, it chronicles Judah now going and, and taking the place of Joshua to conquer many pieces of the land. Right? So they Judah gets sent with Simeon to fight against the Canaanites, and then they defeat them, and they cut off the thumbs and toes of the king. Uh, apparently, it's because the king himself liked to collect thumbs and toes of other kings. Mm. So they were making a big point of that. They then fight against and take Jerusalem, which, according to Joshua 10, we had already hanged the king of Jerusalem, right? He was one of the three, one of the five kings that came against the Israelites. And then it's confirmed in Joshua 12 when we get the list of kings that the king of Jerusalem is already dead. Then Judah takes Hebron, according to Joshua 10. Joshua had already went up with all Israel from Eglon to Hebron. They assaulted it and took it and struck it with the edge of the sword and its king and its towns and every person in it. He left no one remaining, just as he had done to Eglon and utterly destroyed it with every person in it. So Hebron doesn't exist anymore, according to Joshua. And then according to Joshua 11, they repeat this. They say that they had destroyed it with all of its towns. They... But also fight against the Canaanites in Negeb, which according to Joshua 11, we have that summary of the land that Joshua takes. They had already taken the Negeb. Then Judah defeats Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai, and they had already been defeated by Caleb in Joshua 15. We were just talking about them, the, the sons of... The, the, the grandsons of, of Arba. Oh, okay. Yeah, Anak. And then also according to Joshua 11... Joshua had taken out all of the Anakim, and none of them remained in Israel. They then take Debir, and we get the exact same story that was in Joshua 15. Some differences here is that in the previous version, like we talked about, Caleb's daughter had asked for the upper and lower springs and got them. This time she gets the upper and lower Guloth. Also, at Joshua 11, this Debir had already been destroyed with all of its towns. Right Then they take the Negev with the help of Hobab's descendants. Like we said, already taken in Joshua 11, and that's it. Uh, there's like a bunch more after that about all the tribes basically failing to to drive out the Canaanites or other peoples from their la- land mm-hmm. and then instead enslaving them. And it, it's meant to draw attention to that because that's supposed to be the reason that everything goes south. Yeah, so it talks about how like God is angry because they're supposed to kill everybody, but they didn't. And so he says, like, you know, they're forever going to be a thorn in their side. And then Joshua dies again. Yep, again. <laughs> and then again, God is like admonishing them because the people are starting to intermarry with the people that they didn't fully wipe out. And so they're starting to worship other gods like Baal. And we're introduced to a, a new goddess, Astart. She's different from Asherah. They also mention Asherah later on. But Astart is a goddess of war, sexuality, royal power, and healing. Yeah, I kind of like read right over that because I had like... They look so similar. Yeah, I was just like, oh, it's Asherah again. Right. And didn't. Nope, it's a little bit different. And then it talks about like, it kind of sets up what you already mentioned, which is basically throughout Judges, we're going to have these periods of like turmoil and like turning away from God. And then these Judges are going to rise up and lead the people. They're going to be with God and they're going to be solid. And then when they die... People aren't going to know how to act again, and they're going to get conquered, and it's just going to oscillate like that. We also have at the end of this section, it tells us that God had intentionally left all these people to be like a thorn in Israel's side, kind of, kind of as a, a te- as a test. To it actually says as a test to Israel to see if they will remain faithful. He left all these people, mm-hmm. and that 
sort of contradicts the very beginning of this chapter, which says that God is angry with them because they left those people, right? In one version, it's the Israelites fail to do what they're told and get rid of all these people. And as a consequence for that, everything goes south. But in this other version, God actually intentionally leaves these people there as a test, and then they fail the test. Mm-hmm. To me, it's like a, it's kind of indicative of the like balancing act that Christians a lot of times have to play right. when they're trying to maintain the idea of like omniscience. And because, free will. Yeah, it's kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, it's your fault that like these things are happening, right? It's, it's sin. It's like, you know, you're failing and you're sinning. And now there are consequences for that and your life's you know bad because of it or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it's also that God has a plan and all of these bad things are part of the plan, right? Which sounds really bad, but like in order to maintain the idea of omniscience, you kind of have to have God intentionally doing everything. It can't be an accident. Yeah. So yeah, I think a little, little foreshadowing, I guess, to the same debates that play out. Mm-hmm. So then we introduce to our first judge, who's Othniel. And as their ruler, he frees the Israelites from living under King Kushan, and they have peace for 40 years, and then he dies. Also in this one, so in Joshua, Othniel is described as Caleb's nephew. And so we said, you know, they're cousins marry. In Judges, Othniel is described as Caleb's brother. So if he did marry Caleb's daughter, then this relationship is explicitly forbidden right. in Leviticus. Yeah, uncles, yeah. It seems like it's pretty clear here in what it says that he's his brother. It, nothing is clear. <laughs> <laughs> well, nothing's clear because it contradicts itself. Yeah. But. All right. So after Othniel, then we have Ehud. So after Othniel dies, Israelites go into chaos mode. God strengthens the king of Moab against them. And so he takes over them and the Israelites are forced to serve underneath him for 18 years. Until Ehud comes along. This man makes a double-edged sword, which I guess was uncommon enough that they had to mention that it was a double-edged sword. Um, that is a cubit long. Which is, so a cubit is linked from your elbow to your middle finger. Yeah. So it's not it's a very not, big it's sword. It's not a sword. It's basically a, um, a shank. A, um, what is <laughs> that called? A, a, a dagger. It's a little bigger than a dagger, I think. Uh, whatever. Daggers can be lots of different lengths. So shut up. <laughs> So he has a dagger underneath his clothes. He goes to the king and he's like, hey, king, I have a secret message for you. And the king is like, ooh, secret message. I'll send all my people away. So that way nobody can hear the secret message that you're going to give me. So he sends all of his attendants away. And so they are up in the king's roof chamber. And he tells him again, like, hey, so I have this message for you. It's from God. So with his left hand because they explicitly mention that he is left-handed. He grabs the sword from his right thigh, and he stabs the king in the stomach. And then in this part, the translation gets like a little weird. So it says, the hilt goes in after the blade, and the fat closes around it, and dirt comes out. So my guess for what they're talking about when they say, and dirt comes out, is that the king shits himself. More why I think that when I finish the story. So, kills the king, he locks all the doors, and then he escapes. Um, so the servants go back to the doors, and they notice that they're locked, and they think to themselves that he must be relieving himself. And so it's ambiguous what relieving himself means, but, like, in my mind, relieving yourself is, like, going to the bathroom. So when it says the dirt comes out, 
I think he shit himself and they like smelled it and that's why they thought he was relieving himself. But it also, it doesn't quite make sense why he would be relieving himself in this room because <laughs> it says that they're in a roof chamber, which is like like where you accept guests. I don't know if there's a bathroom in there. I don't, yeah. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and then it says they wait until they are embarrassed, which is, I don't really know what that means. Like, I don't yeah. know why they waited until they feel embarrassed. One of to finally unlock the doors, find their king dead. And then meanwhile, the, Ehud has already, you know, fled. He's gotten his army. He comes back and then they kill 10,000 Moabites. Yeah, I, I think this is one of those things that's a little bit lost to the times in terms of like, just, I don't know, the, the like phrases, but also just like the way people thought, like, I think what it meant to be embarrassed maybe meant something. A little bit, slight, just slightly. I don't know. Different. Maybe you just meant like they were like feeling uncomfortable. Like they waited a really long time, and it's like, oh, now it's been a really long time. Yeah, like things I feel are like getting weird. Maybe, maybe something's off, but yeah, it might be like like if if I was like, all right, this is stupid. I'm going in now. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like that's like their equivalent of embarrassed. But right. um, yeah, I mean, so the first time I read this, I, I I didn't think about the the like dirt thing as being him shitting himself before. Um, which is interesting. I, I didn't really, I just kind of passed up the dirt part. Mm-hmm. But the first time I read this, when it said that he was, they thought he was relieving himself, and then it said that they were embarrassed, my thought was that maybe he was masturbating. And they were, they were like euf- using a euphemism for that because um, they, they tend to do, do that with anything remotely sexual. Yeah. Um, either way, either one of those things is a weird thing to do when you supposedly have some kind of guest in there. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think they assumed that the guests had already left because they left the chamber and then came back, maybe. Um, but yeah, also some translations have this a little bit different. So the other way that you'll see this phrase instead of relieving himself is that he uncovered his feet. He was uncovering his feet in the chamber. And that is understood to mean one of two things. Either it means he was relieving himself, like he was peeing or something, right? Or it means he was sleeping, and people think that that kind of makes sense because it's his like it's his summer chamber, so it should be cooler in there than most other parts of the palace. Mm-hmm. So he might have laid down in there to sleep because it was nice and cool. But yeah, I don't know why they're embarrassed, other than like we said that embarrassed just means something completely different. Yeah. So yeah, that's kind of like a weird story because there's like you know weapons underneath clothes. There's like specific mentionings of the fact that he's left-handed, which is. Not something that we've seen before for like our prophets. It feels a little more like a like a hero kind of trait. Talk about how they're left-handed. Yeah. So yeah, just kind of a weird story. And also, just not a particularly heroic act. No. Sneaks in, stabs a guy, sneaks out through a window. Yeah. Yeah. So after Ehud, then we get Shamgar, who kills 600 Philistines with an ox goad. Yeah, which is... um. A cattle prod, not like what I think of as a modern cattle prod, which has electricity, but like basically a poker. And that's all they say about Shamgar. So after him, now we get women. Woo. So one woman. Yeah, one woman. The next judge is Deborah. Deborah is a. uh, Background on what's going on when Deborah arises as the judge. So again, Israel returns to evil. God puts King Jabin of Canaan in charge of them. And uh, King Jabin oppresses them for 20 years. Then Deborah comes along, a prophetess, 
and Wife of Lapidoth, which isn't really important. Lapidoth isn't in this. Um, that's the only. That's literally the only thing we ever know about her husband is his name, actually. And he might not even be real. So in other translations, it says she's like of Lapidoth, so she might be from some place called Lapidoth. Um, or her father is Lapidoth. Yeah, and then Lapid means torch or lightning. So it, they could also just be describing her as like a fiery woman or a woman of fire. Okay, so she is our one and only female judge, which is interesting because like a long, I don't even remember what book this was in, but we talked about this idea about how Moses, who was appointing judges first, one right. of the original patriarchs was appointing judges and you were like, oh, that seems like a good idea to like break it up like that. And I was like, no, boo, because it's all men. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but there was one woman. So. I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess they must be, but it like also seemed to me when I first like started reading this, I didn't understand this idea of judges to be the, the same as Moses's idea of judges. And I guess it probably isn't because they're from different it seems sources. Di- yeah, because like their idea of they judges is like people. Yeah, exactly. Their idea of judges was people who are like settling little small disputes that can't go all the way to the top. Yeah, um, they they're, like they're more local. God's chosen. Yeah, know. but these people are like warriors, like leading them against enemies kind right. of thing. Yeah. Anyway, so she isn't like specifically like a general or a leader, but the people are going to her for advice and for judgments. Right. So uh, the people are, are toiling underneath this king. So she summons Barak from the Neftali tribe, and she tells him to go to Mount Tabor with some people from Zebulun's tribe to defeat Sisera, who is like the commander of King Jabin's army. And And then Barak says, will you come with me, mommy? Yeah, he's like, I'll go if you go. (laughs) (laughs) And she says, yeah, okay, I'll I'll go. Um, And she also tells him that there will be no glory for him because God is going to sell Sisera to the hand of a woman. So on their way over there, Sisera, you know, also hears word that they're going there. So he heads that way too. The Lord is with them. So they defeat Sisera's army. He panics, Sisera does, and he tries to run away on foot. Meanwhile, they defeat his entire army and he flees to some like neighboring neighboring ally kingdom. And he goes into a tent. Yeah, the kingdom is like Hobab's people, the Kenite. Mm-hmm. And I... They're, you know, they're friends of the Israelites, but they also seem to be friendly with uh, the Canaanites. Yes. Or with his, this kingdom, particularly. So he, yeah, so he flees to Jael, who is the wife of Heber. So he, um, so he's in her tent, and she tells him to turn aside, and then she covers him with a rug. He asks for something to drink because he's thirsty, and she gives him some milk. And then he tells her, like, Hey, like if anybody like comes to the tent, like tell them nobody's here. She's basically like tucked him up into this little rug, given him a glass of milk and, you know, been like, okay, yeah, sure. Like I'll do that. And then she takes a tent peg and she drives it through his head while he's sleeping and she hammers it all the way to the ground. So then Barrick catches up. He, he goes to the tent where Jail is and Jail's like, um, like, come here, like, let me just show you what I just did. And she brings him inside and she shows him dead Cicero with a peg through his temple lying on her floor. Yeah. And then after that, they destroy King Jabin. So then after that, the next chapter is the Song of Deborah. So again, we have another first and only 
So this is a song about the conquest of Deborah and Jael, who basically helped bring down King Jabin. Some scholars think that this is one of the oldest parts of the Bible because of the grammar that's used. Mm. And another thing about the song is the song mentions six tribes go into battle. But in the story that we just heard, there's only two. It just talks mm. about Zebulon and that. Nephtali. Yeah. So some things I have about this, uh, I mean, you can read it for yourself, but it kind of like poetically summarizes everything we just talked about. The first line, the Septuagint and Hebrew disagree about. So the Septuagint it's like some line about like beginning to lead it's kind of like worded weirdly but it talks about beginning to lead and then the hebrew line is referring to long hair growth which is the one we see here which says when locks are long in israel when the people offer themselves willingly bless the lord i don't know it's like a weird line like why are they talking about the locks of, of hair but hair at this time was associated with like as a sign of Uh, good health and strength if you had long hair. Mm -hmm. So the idea of this line is like when Israel shows itself strong is like kind of the best way to translate that. Um, Also men like would men would grow their hair long for battle and stuff like that. It also seems like it's kind of roasting the other, the other tribes. I don't know if you saw that, but it says, why did Reuben tarry among the sheepfolds (laughs) and Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. Why did Dan abide by the ships? Asher sat still at the coast. And then it kind of praises Zebulun and Naphtali and says, Zebulun and Naphtali scorned death on the field. It also talks about Kishon, which kind of took me some time to figure out what that was talking about. It says the torrent Kishon swept them away. The onrushing torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. Kishon is apparently a river. So scholars think that this refers to a flood that occurred during some battle, or or at least there's, they claim that there was a flood taking place during this battle. And that is what helped them win the battle was that this flood happened. And then we get to what I think is the most interesting part where it says curse Miraz. It just kind of comes out of nowhere. Did you see that? It says curse Miraz, says the angel of the Lord, curse bitterly its inhabitants because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Yeah, so it like comes out of nowhere. We've never heard of Miraz before. It's never mentioned. So like the simple explanation for this is that Miraz is just a city that's in the plains of Galilee, and it didn't come and help Israel. Which uh, to me, it's like weird because it's just like, again, we've never seen any mention of it. But I think that's maybe explained by the fact that you're like you're saying that it might be a very old part of the Bible that was a part of some other text or books of, of Israelite poetry. That's the boring explanation though. And I'd like to move on to the more interesting one. <laughs> so, uh, according to the Talmud, which is further Jewish religious writing, that's not the Torah. Miraz is a planet in the stellar sphere, right? Because according to the beliefs of the Hebrew Bible and the Bible, the solar system exists in a, sphere around the earth and so it's a something in this stellar sphere and then some think that the lines that talk about the stars being in the favor of israel implies that miraz is in fact a star and so there's like allusions to this potentially being like referring to like angels and stuff like that it could be that miraz is an angel that does not aid the israelites even while the other angels do and then we get to my favorite one, which is that Miraz is a planet and these are aliens. 
Nice. Yeah, so the stars coming to the aid of Israel refers to aliens that supported Israel in the fight against the Canaanites, Mm -hmm. and Miraz did not. Uh, And there are actually, like, there's actual scholarship around this. Like, Hmm. there is a 12th century rabbi who believed that the Israelites had interacted with with, with aliens, and that this line was about that. He also thought that the main difference between like aliens and humans is that humans are the only ones who have free will and aliens exist on other planets and can do things but they don't have free will okay interesting yeah just just some guy yeah i know i know (laughs) (laughs) also this is like shared a belief that was shared by the former head of the israeli space program he also kind of keyed into this line of the torah and talked about it being about the israelites having interacted with alien life. Wow. So we got women leading. We got women leading. And aliens. And aliens. What a story. Confirmed aliens. That's just <laughs> the only part of the Torah, I believe. <laughs> I think it's really interesting that this is like potentially one of the oldest parts of the Bible because we're introduced to it now. So it, if you're reading it in this, in the order that it's presented to us, it seems like, oh, maybe things are getting more progressive and like, they're starting to let women be judges and right. have a little bit more of a leadership role. But in actuality, this could be like a much older story where women maybe used to have some kind of power and then eventually it's like taken away. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I, I think like in this culture, like certain women can have power in very specific contexts and when it's being used in the service of, you know, this male dominated priesthood essentially mm-hmm. but you're right i did appreciate these characters the only thing that i have to be mad about is the fact that this is literally the first time that i've heard about them <laughs> yeah like i was not taught the story of a woman driving a stake through a man's head while he was sleeping after she tucked him in and gave him some milk yeah also going back to that milk discussion that that's also called out in the song of deborah that jail gives sisera milk when he asks for water which didn't say that explicitly in the story it's first mentioned in the song of deborah but why is giving him milk such a you know what i mean like i don't know wait what is it what do you mean like is it an insult is that what it's i don't know is it an insult or is it like that's part of what killed him like i don't know the only thing i could think of was that they were implying that like you know milk's gonna make it like he can't stay awake after (laughs) drinking milk (laughs) (laughs) she gave him milk and a blanket no way he's staying away taking a nip nap yeah He's going to sleep right through that nail going through his head. <laughs> yeah. That's I, I, the best I could come up with. All right. Well, we're going to close it out there. I think this is our first truly short episode. Sometimes we have claimed that the episode was going to be short and then had to later delete it because it did not end up being short. <laughs> sure. But this one is actually kind of short. Yeah. And we we stopped a little early on this just because uh, I feel like 10 chapters of Judges was, would actually be too short for the next episode. So... We'll have the last 15 and we'll close out judges more cleanly and not have to carry over to the next one. Yep. All right. So hopefully this didn't bore you too much and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.